Hey, Matt Teichman here from Elucidations. Before we get going today, I just thought I'd ask if you're a fan of the show to maybe go to our iTunes page and leave a rating and or review, and that way more people can discover it. All right, thanks. Welcome to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman. And I'm Francie Russell. With us today is Bryce Hubner, Associate Professor of Philosophy at Georgetown University. And he's here to discuss race and cognitive science. Bryce Hubner, welcome. Thank you. Thanks for having me on the uh, podcast. So I'm going to open my question just by citing two recent statistics. One is that of all the PhD students in philosophy in America, less than 1% of those students are black. And of all the tenured philosophy professors in the United States, about 4% are black. So just from those numbers alone, it's clear that philosophy is a very predominantly white discipline. And it speaks to so who is participating and able to participate in the discipline of philosophy in the 21st century. Something that's interesting is a lot of people have thought that one way to address this issue is to address it at the level of syllabus design and in terms of the content of philosophy. So I wondered, what do you think about this as an approach? I think that there's a lot to be said in favor of diversifying and making your syllabi more inclusive. One of the things that I've focused a lot on in my teaching over the last couple of years is trying to make sure that I'm not just including philosophers from the Western European tradition and bringing in philosophers from the African and Africana traditions, bringing in philosophers from the Indian and Chinese traditions, and bringing in perspectives from disability and from other parts of philosophy that aren't mainstream. But at the same time, I think that you're running a real risk in trying to bring in those perspectives of generating effects that are likely to backfire. So the thought here, roughly, is that if you're someone who already is highly committed to racial egalitarianism, to gender inclusiveness, and to including disability perspectives, in your thinking and in your approach to doing philosophy, shifting those perspectives can be really productive. But if you're not, if you're the sort of person who is highly trained in the Western tradition, is only trained in analytic philosophy or only trained in a particular strain of continental philosophy, what might happen when you include those other perspectives is that you present them to students, for example, in ways that show that you're not as excited, that you're not as interested, and that you're not as well informed about those perspectives. Students will pick up on that. And it's one of the sorts of things that we are learning from a cognitive science perspective about humans, that we pick up on those sorts of effectively valenced minor sorts of differences in presentation 
and treat them as more decisive evidence about the value and structure of the things we're being presented. So a person who adds at the end of a course that is centered on the Western European tradition, a piece by someone who is of African descent might present that information in a way that suggests to the students that this is something that is to be marginalized, that is to be rejected, or is to be ignored, because the professor themselves has already shown that they reject it, that they've ignored it, and that they don't care about it. Okay, that was really helpful, but maybe a little disheartening for certain people. So if adding philosophers of more diverse origins and descents isn't the answer all the time, what do you think that we should do? I think that any of us who are committed to transforming the kind of space that is generated within philosophy from an exclusively or predominantly white space to a multicultural or diverse space has to be committed not just to changing their own attitudes, but to changing the structure and organization of philosophy as a discipline. I think what we need to commit to is to hiring and employing more people of African descent in the discipline, to fostering the conditions that are going to make more people of African descent want to be part of our discipline, to fostering the conditions where they can develop perspectives on philosophy that aren't embedded in 2,000 years of European history, but are instead embedded in traditions that are a part of the African and Africana intellectual tradition. And we need to do that in a way that disrupts the structure of white power and white domination of those spaces. That's not an easy thing to do. And one of the things that we see in a lot of cases is people who try to develop those sorts of perspectives often are marginalized in the discipline, right? People who want to work on traditional approaches to Aztec philosophy, marginalized. People who want to work on the beautiful political tradition that comes out of Egypt, marginalized. Or just ignored. And I think that if we're committed to making philosophy in more inclusive space, we've got to work to make sure that that doesn't happen. It's not just a matter of changing our own individual attitudes towards what counts as philosophy and what doesn't, but it's a matter of shifting what gets included in philosophy conferences, in philosophy anthologies, in philosophy courses, across the board to building a more diverse and inclusive space. So nothing less than rethinking philosophy itself. I think that's right. And I think, in a sense, this shouldn't be too surprising. Philosophy has, for the last 2,000 years, revolved around a set of problems bequeathed to us from ancient Greek philosophers. Sometimes that's really productive. There's been a lot of really interesting phenomena that's come out of that. 
But in order to maintain that tradition, we've worked really hard to exclude other sorts of perspectives and to treat other traditions as, at best, trying to deal with their own situation and never trying to engage with philosophically robust concepts in the way that we Westerners do. And importantly, I think there's a lot of people who are doing good work that are attempting to broaden the canon in exactly the way that we need to do. So Chike Jeffers has a really nice paper on the tale of the eloquent peasant as a resource for thinking about political philosophy that I think really does some interesting work in sort of broadening the intellectual space and the intellectual tradition. Jim Maffey has done some beautiful work laying out the metaphysical presuppositions of Aztec philosophers in a way that's attempting to bring that into conversation with traditions that are prominent that we've all learned. And I think by treating that stuff as genuine philosophy rather than as marginal, we can start to develop a better sense of what philosophy should look like in the 21st century. Do you think this situation you just described is unique to philosophy, or is it a special case of a more general social phenomenon? My inclination is to think that what we see in philosophy is an example of a phenomenon that's long been studied by sociologists as the phenomena of white spaces. And I think that another case where you see it is in the organization and structure of cities and the organization and structure of the public spaces that we move through. In a lot of cases, especially in the United States, as you move through a city, you observe neighborhoods shifting from white neighborhoods to black neighborhoods. White folks tend to perceive the white neighborhoods as clean, as safe, as secure, and as friendly. And they tend to perceive the black spaces as dirty, as dangerous, and as threatening. I think the same sorts of problems that we see in the case of philosophy are operating here. There have long been structural and institutional decisions that have led to the organization of lived social spaces that have fostered segregation and attempted to mitigate attempts to diversify social spaces. Neighborhoods in big cities often structure along racial lines, with people being unwilling to traverse those racial boundaries. Sometimes there are belts in between neighborhoods where people will end up meeting. But often, the people in the white neighborhoods end up colonizing those spaces and pushing out the people who are members of other racialized groups. What's happening there in a lot of cases is that folks in white communities are coming to be attuned to patterns of white ideology, to the experience of white bodies, and to the sense that that's the way that things are supposed to be, such that as they pass through neighborhoods that are more diverse or neighborhoods that are 
populated predominantly by blacks or by Hispanic people. They experience that as different, and not just different, but problematic in a way that indicates dirtiness or dangerousness. Just in response to that, it's true that in many major cities, certain neighborhoods will not be allocated as much funding and financial support as other neighborhoods. So it will be true that there are going to be certain neighborhoods, often non-white neighborhoods, that haven't been as well-maintained because the city hasn't been putting the money there. So what are your thoughts about that? So there are two things that I think are important to note there. One is that it's true that predominantly black neighborhoods and predominantly Hispanic neighborhoods have historically not been targets of money from local and federal government interventions. It's also true that those neighborhoods tend to be neighborhoods where grocery stores are likely to be less prevalent, especially high-quality grocery stores, where high-quality restaurants and access to high-quality produce is likely to be low, where the schools are organized in ways that perpetuate racialized stereotypes of various sorts. And at the same time, here's the other point, the logic of the ghetto that runs through many of our thoughts about what black neighborhoods are likely to be or what Hispanic neighborhoods are likely to be is perpetuated by popular books, by popular music, by videos that we see and films that we see, by public media representations of these spaces. So we've got running in parallel structural processes that severely and systematically disadvantage non-white neighborhoods and a logic of racist ideology that runs through public representations of these spaces. So when I, as a white person, conceptualize what one of these spaces is as I pass through it, I'm going to see things that indicate to me that this is not a place that is like my space. It's a place that doesn't have the kinds of goods and services that I'm used to. It's a place where people are engaged in practices that I'm shown in the public media as threatening or dangerous, that are wearing clothes that I've been taught to treat as threatening and dangerous. So my attitudes towards that are going to build up around those sorts of public media representations and those structures in the world in a way that's going to lead to decisions in the future that are going to further disadvantage those sorts of communities. So what you end up with is a self-perpetuating cycle of disadvantage, of propaganda that fuels more disadvantage, which fuels more propaganda, which fuels even deeper exclusion and disadvantaging, to the point where you get to situations where it makes sense from some messed up perspective to say that statistically these neighborhoods might be more likely to be dangerous. And for my hunch as I move through them to treat them as more dangerous or more threatening. But importantly, 
it may turn out to be the case that those neighborhoods are no more dangerous, no more likely to be dirty, and that I'm no more likely to be harmed or threatened as I move through those neighborhoods. Because what I'm tracking is not the actual structure of the neighborhood itself, but the structure of the neighborhood infused by the propagandistic representations that I rely on to make sense of the space as I move through it. Okay, so the idea seems to be then that it's not like I've gone out and done research about the actual stats about various neighborhoods in the city and, uh, you know, based on conversations with my friends, arrived at reasoned opinions about them or anything like that. It's more like, well, you know, I've developed these habits of perceiving things just through the culture into which I was initiated, and they're like subconscious habits. Like it or not, I end up taking in the way a neighborhood looks and thinking and feeling about it a certain way, sort of subconsciously. And maybe my sort of subconscious biases going through a certain neighborhood are inaccurate, right? Maybe, in fact, my feeling that a certain place is unsafe does not, in fact, reflect any actual lack of safety in the neighborhood. So what if I made the following proposal? What if I decided, well, all right, the answer is to undo my habits of perception. The answer is to sort of like undo this uh, way of perceiving that I've been inculcated with and either give myself the right one or maybe even try to strive for an unbiased perception, perform some sort of like therapy on myself so that I can eliminate these biases from my perception or at least have the right biases. Do you think anything like that could work? I think that there's something deeply right about the suggestion that's now common in philosophy that implicit biases play an important role in the decisions that we make. But at the same time, I think that many ways of framing that discussion focus far too heavily on what I can do to myself and insufficiently on the social structures that we are attuned to. The standard approach suggests, I take it, that I want to work on my own biases to get to the point where I don't show any anymore. There was an interesting ambiguity in the way that you asked the question. You said cultivating better biases on the one hand or eliminating biases on the other. I think those are two different ways of approaching the question, and I think what we want to do is pull them apart. I think many white folks are inculcated into ideological structures that lead us to assume that a colorblind ideology is what we want to aim for. We want to stop thinking about race and start by thinking everybody is equal. As a result of that, we find discussions of race to be uncomfortable, and we find them to sort of raise our hackles about whether somebody's being racist just because they're talking about race. That same sort of attitude that generates the appeal of colorblind ideologies is what leads us to think that we want to eliminate racial biases altogether. And I think the problem is that given the kinds of animals humans are, 
much of our cognition, much of our thinking is driven by bias. Bias is a core determining and driving feature of how we get around in the world. Attempts to eliminate our biases, I think, are likely to backfire because what they do is lead us to avoid the structural and institutional factors that give rise to and produce our racist attitudes. And this is an insight that's come from the implicit bias literature that we can have explicit beliefs that are egalitarian while retaining automatic responses that are racist. I think that trying to eliminate bias has the untoward effect of generating those kinds of unbiased beliefs while leaving the automatic responses intact. But then to go back to your second suggestion about cultivating better biases, I think that if we can get to a point where reflexively and automatically we reject racist claims and racist structures, where the thought that immediately occurs to us as we pass through a diverse space is this is a source of innovation and difference rather than a source of danger and uncleanliness, then we're going to be in a much better space. The problem is cultivating those biases is an incredibly difficult task. And this is what ties us back to some of the stuff that we were talking about in regards to philosophy. So in order to shift the kinds of attitudes that we have reflexively and automatically, the kinds of deep emotional and effective responses that we have to a space or to a neighborhood, we need to shift the social and institutional structures that we're attuned to. So in order to cultivate better biases, what we need to do is inhabit environments that don't lead to problematic ideologies around the iconic ghetto, that are grounded in a recognition that racial diversity is productive and interesting rather than dangerous and problematic. So everything you just said right now about environment and space sort of runs against what might be an intuitive way of thinking about the way that human beings relate to environments and space. And the intuitive way of thinking about that is that the environment is a sort of neutral container within which human beings move and interact. And what you've suggested is that the environment actually plays a much larger determining role in how human beings understand that environment and how they understand each other and how they understand themselves. Yeah, so I think that's exactly right. And one of the things that drives this way of thinking for me is some research that's been carried out by a social psychologist named Buju Dasgupta. What she has done is run a bunch of naturalistic experiments where she looks at the neighborhoods that people move through the people that they interact with, 
and the conditions under which they interact with those people. And the effects on both people's immediate reflexive judgments and on their more robust theoretical commitments. So what she's done is looked at cases where people interact with a minority population in more diverse sorts of situations and compared that to a situation where that's otherwise similar, but people interact with a minority population only in a narrow range of contexts. So to give an example, as I move about one part of my neighborhood in Washington, D.C., most of the African and African-American people I encounter are cab drivers or are working at Starbucks or working in service positions. If that's all I'm exposed to, what I'm going to attune to is the assumption that people of African or African-American descent are inhabitants of those kinds of social roles. And my automatic and reflexive judgments are going to associate them with those roles, as well as my explicit theoretical judgments if I don't stop to think about them really hard. If, by contrast, I move through neighborhoods where I encounter members of those same racial groups, but in a far more diverse range of situations, not just as service workers, but in a wide variety of different sorts of situations where I'm having conversations with people, where they're neighbors, where we're living and acting in the same spaces, my reflexive and automatic responses are going to tune up to those diversity of possibilities. And my reflective judgments and my reflective decisions are going to be way more tied to that diverse range of phenomena than they are if I grow up and interact with people in a situation where I interact with others in a narrow range of situations. So you were involved recently with a um, performance art piece by Greg Deal, which tried to deal with some of these issues in kind of a new way. Uh, could you tell us something about that? Yeah, so my friend Greg is a Native American activist and an artist who decided to take on the name of the Washington football team in a new and interesting way. Washington's football team is named after a racial slur. The racial slur is redskin, and redskin referred to the scalps of Native Americans being brought back for bounty. And that has been a point of contention, as with many other sport team names. For example, the name of the Chicago hockey team, the Blackhawks, is also a target of these sorts of criticisms. What Greg tried to do was to get people thinking about the ways that their immediate and reflexive responses, as well as their explicit decisions and beliefs about Native Americans, were being filtered through a problematic ideology that's racist to the core. 
So what he did was have four of his friends engage with him using the kinds of racialized ideology that shows up on blog posts and in the comments sections of newspapers that are directed towards the issue of changing the name of the football team. The installation was called Redskin, and as we proceeded through the event, we started with relatively minor racialized epithets and attitudes and built up towards more explicit racist claims about Native Americans while he sat there silently being the target but not a participant in the racist behavior. His goal was to take a set of phenomena that are usually spread out temporally and spatially for white observers and for black observers and to compress them in a way that made it clear why they were all problematically racist. As someone who might utter one of those claims, it might seem like a one-off event that is decoupled from any kind of structural or institutional problem. So you might think that it's not a big deal to mention something racially about Native Americans, to make an offhanded joke, or to mention something about the fact that Native Americans are perceived often to be more likely to be alcoholic or whatever else it is. You might think that that's not a huge deal when you say it as an isolated event. But when you see it all compressed into a single small event, it immediately becomes overwhelmingly obvious that it's a racist interaction. And one of the things that I think is really interesting is that for someone who's Native American, you might perceive one of those individual events as part of a larger structural and institutionalized pattern. For the perpetrator of the racist aggression, you might perceive it as an isolated incident. And what Greg wanted to do was to invert that sort of recognition and get the people who perceive it as a one-off event to see it as part of a larger institutionalized and social problem. Yeah, so effectively what's happening here is you're taking a phenomenon that might just seem like a one-off to the outside observer who's not the target of these, what are sometimes called microaggressions, and present it in such a way that the cumulative effect of those little incidents is felt. Mm -hmm. So are there any lessons we can draw from this example about how the human mind works, which might teach us something about ways to deal with complicated moral and political dilemmas of this sort? So... I think that the vast majority of my own work has been an attempt to answer exactly that kind of question. One of the things that I'm really interested in, and much of my work is way more heavy on the cognitive science, is understanding how the kinds of learning systems that you find in biological organisms guide 
patterns of attunement to social situations. And I've been trying to think about the way that that can inform us in thinking about ethically significant phenomena more broadly. One of the most important insights to be gained by thinking about cognition from a biological perspective is that biological organisms run on batteries and they have to recharge those batteries or they die. But we live in a dynamic and uncertain world where we have to constantly be making decisions about the value of taking different options and planning different trajectories. We evolved to develop strategies to get around the world in ways that will maximize the long-term returns on our actions as we move through the world. And one of the things that I find very interesting is that when you live in a human-structured world that we've organized around different kinds of social ideology, the patterns that those systems tune up to can often be things that systematically disadvantage us as animals or disadvantage us as animals that want to live communally with the other people that are in our environment. And one of my main questions is trying to think about how to adjust those learning systems that attune us to patterns of social regularity in ways that promote our long-term self-interest as animals. I think that racist ideology is one of the things that leads to systematic disadvantages. And I think changing the structure of our world in ways that lead us to have more productive and egalitarian biases is likely to be in our long-term self-interest as animals. So I think thinking about these things from a cognitive scientific perspective suggests that any kind of moral engagement that we want to have with the world is going to both be structured by and is going to structure the patterns of ideology kicking around in our world. So when we think about how to intervene on our world, we need to think at two levels, both at the level of our immediate reflexive responses and at the level of our reflective attitudes that are generated by the things that we've tuned up to in our world. Bryce Hubner, thanks so much for joining us. And thank you very much for having me. If you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at, at @elucidationspod. And as always, you can post a comment to our blog at Lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening. Thanks again for listening.